Welcome to the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Williams. If you want to follow the podcast on Facebook, go ahead and do so at Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone. If you want to follow the podcast on Getter, Truth Social, and Twitter, go ahead and do so at RKY Freedom. That's at RKY Freedom. If there's a guest you think I should interview, you have a suggestion, or you just want to drop a line, you can go ahead and email me as well. That email address is Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. That's Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. On part two of Back to the Basics, the Gospel of Freedom, we discuss a lot of topics. For example, How do you forgive somebody and not trust them, but yet you still forgive that individual? How do you love somebody and not approve of their lifestyle, but yet you don't want to disown them as a friend or family member? We also talked about getting saved. If you get saved, does that mean more accountability is expected from you? All this and more on the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. It's uh, glad to have you back on. We're going to do some more of this, and uh, we may do a part three. Who knows? But uh, we'll see where this goes. We went, we left off talking about the poor last time, and we were discussing what you do with people who are on drugs or just don't seem to be motivated you you know your ideas and i i I agree with you that they should go to the church and the church can help them out and say okay but you've got to do something yourself i remember working at a pretty big company i'm not going to say the name of it and they fired me and i went to my bishop at the church that i go to and he did the same thing he said okay um the first question he asked me was how much is your rent, which I was surprised that he did because I was actually told years before that bishops had to go through red tape. But he asked me, and we came to an agreement that I had to clean the church for a few months until I got back on uh, some assistance and whatnot. And that's really the way it should be, shouldn't it? Yeah. You know, it's... it's um. Charity is a wonderful thing. Uh, the Bible commands believers to uh, give to the needs of those who are poor. And when you do that, um, you know, there's a blessing in that. Um, and so I, I really do believe that. Um, I, I don't know if I told you this story last time. If I did, let, let me know. But I was visiting with a pastor uh, in Montana, when I was uh, the coordinator for the John Birch Society out there, and he um, he had told me, he said, you know, I used to believe like you do. And I said, what, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you know, I used to, I, didn't, I wasn't a John Birch Society member, but I had friends in the John Birch Society. And, um, you know, I used to believe in personal responsibility and, and, uh, you know that that you know everybody should be 
working hard and, and being responsible for themselves. And I said, I said, well, what do you mean used to? He said, well, I, I just don't think that there's enough good people left um, in society. And so we need to tax the rich in order to get to the poor or to, in order to help the poor. And I said, well, what, what do you do when, when people who could be working decide not to? Um, well, actually, what I first said was, I said, you know, the Bible says that when you take from one group and you give it to another, uh, who's it doesn't belong to, that's theft. And he said, well, you call it theft, I call it responsibility. And so I said, I said, well, let me ask you this. If, if we take from one group and give it to the other, um, if we're going to call that personal responsibility, then let's look at it this way. Whatever the government taxes, they're going to get more of or get less of because they're penalizing people for doing it. And whatever the government subsidizes, it's going to get more of because they're giving people money to do it. I said, so you're going to have people uh, because they're being given money to work, to not work, who aren't working, who otherwise could be working uh, if you weren't paying them not to work, but you're taxing their labor. And so you, you discourage them to work. And so I said to him, I said, what are you going to do with people who could be working, but choose not to because they're receiving money from the government? And he thought about it for about three seconds. And he said, oh, we're going to throw those people in jail. And I said, wow, you went from benevolent to dictator awfully quickly. And, and you know, that really is the problem if we look back through history is, you know, despite people's best intentions, uh, when you decide that, hey, I'm going to take from one group and give it to another, it's because you've decided that you're, you are a better um you are better at deciding how people should spend their money rather than they are. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I I don't think, and I don't want to get too off topic, but I I I don't know. I don't think that we could, at least today, go back to the days where the churches handled everything because people are so used to government assistance, government handouts. However, if we did this in increments, if we said, okay, the government is going to do less and less, but let's wean you off the system. And by the way, we're going to preach self-sufficiency in this society. Do you think about the third or fourth generation, we could go back to those times that you were talking about? Oh, I, I think we're going to head there either way. The reality is we can't afford all the subsidies going forward you know our population's declining um you know we, we we are trying to spend all this money and uh i i don't think the economy can handle it so the reality is is you know even now the government assistance are getting less and less that's what inflation does it robs from from the poor uh it robs their savings and you know for those who are dependent on social security prices are going up faster than the government handouts are going up so uh the reality is is it's already happening matter of fact i um was just uh talking to a ministry that hands out food to the poor and they said that you know they're people that are in need of, of additional resources food resources is is way up and you know we think well food stamps that should cover it all 
but the reality is, is um, with no, inflation and the way things are going, it, it just doesn't. So, yeah. I'm actually very surprised that we haven't gotten into a depression since the 30s, but that's a whole nother topic that we can get into later in later episodes down the road if you want to. But let's talk more about this uh, this giving to the poor, about how Jesus Christ helps, came here to help the brokenhearted. And do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I think we're on number six. That uh, is, that, is that what you're... Oh, Still the, on uh, helping the poor, it says, He has sent me... He has sent me to to comfort and brokenhearted uh, the brokenhearted. Um, and then it goes on to say, and to proclaim that captivities, yes, will be re, uh, will be released. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. So we're talking about for anyone who seeks freedom, God will help them. And uh, this passage, Isaiah chapter sixty-one, and. Uh, you're you're referring to verse one there that he brought good news to the poor, um, and he comforted the brokenhearted, proclaimed that the captives will be released, and then he kind of just gives these different contrasts of how God wants to work in our life. He says he sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes. A joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair, and in their righteousness they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. Interesting thing about this passage is it's not just God's desire uh, to see us come out of oppression, to see us seek freedom and obtain it. Uh, it's also when Jesus was uh, on the earth, uh, when he was out doing his ministry, uh, one day he went into the synagogue, and they opened up the scroll of Isaiah and handed it to Jesus, and he read a portion of this passage right here and told them that this passage has been fulfilled today in your sight. And obviously, you know, Jesus' ministry was going out and preaching good news to the poor. Uh, he healed a lot of people and, and obviously comforted many people who were brokenhearted, even uh, bringing you know a, a son uh, back to life of of a lady who was in mourning, um, but we don't have any record of Jesus you know breaking people out of jail. And I think uh, what we see there, and especially if if we look at uh, John chapter eight, is that Jesus is not talking about a physical prison; he's talking about the spiritual prison. He's talking about setting people free from their sin, and that's exactly what his mission uh, was. It's what he accomplished on this earth, was to um, set the captives free, uh, the spiritual captives. Okay, so part of my ignorance here, but when it says, in their witness, they will be like great oaks, what does that mean exactly? It says righteousness, in their righteousness. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, the right. Yeah, uh, what does an oak have to do with that? Part of my ignorance here. Yeah, basically the idea is, and I don't know if you remember back to Psalms twenty-three. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You know, He leads me beside the still waters. The idea is is a metaphor. You know that that uh, 
uh, the people of Israel would understand, you know, as a great oak is somebody who's well-established, has what they need, well-cared for, uh, unmovable, you know, the winds, the storms, uh, they're not going to upheave them, they're not going to overturn them. And so when we live our life in a way that is right, in a way that is good, uh, and, and God establishes us in that way he blesses us, uh, then we will be like that great oak which the Lord has planted for his own glory. So our lives uh, not only will will see success, but that success will reflect God's glory. So you basically will be as firm as an oak tree. What's that? So basically uh, you'll be as firm as an oak tree, I guess. Yeah, exactly, and and oaks, you know, pretty hardwood. So, okay, yeah. Anyway, uh, so we can go on here. His purpose was for uh, his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him, though He is not. Though he's not far from any one of us, uh, do you want to expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, this is a uh, passage where Paul is actually um, talking to a group of people who really aren't Christians. Uh, it's he's in Athens, and he's talking to people who believe in you know many different gods and worship many different gods, and he finds one god uh, or, or a, a statue to an unknown god. And he said, I want to tell you about this unknown God that you worship. And he says, you know, he is the one true God uh, that created everything, uh, created all the nations, uh, you know, put together their pre-appointed times when they would come into existence, when they would come, you know, go out of existence. Um, you know, he created this idea of the nations, which is the government, and the purpose of that was that they would seek after God. Romans 13 says that government is God's minister of justice. It's been given authority by God uh, to punish evil. And so, you know, through the pursuit of um, moral excellence, through the pursuit of, you know, understanding what is right and wrong, uh, people would seek after God. That's God's desire. Uh, and that they would, you know, feel their way towards him. And the reality is, is because God is ever-present or omnipresent, uh, because God is all-knowing, right? He is is never far from any one of us, and he desires for us uh, to, like, a, uh, like what we're talking about here in this section, is uh, he wants people to seek freedom. And so, you know, the United States is a, is a wonderful testimony of how people came over to this country seeking religious freedom, and they put together a constitution that has outlived you know, all of its peers, uh, because it was based on the principles of freedom, uh, the principles of wisdom from God's word, uh, that, you know, that are truth and justice and uh, the timeless principles. And so that's that's God's desire. Um, and, and then he goes on to talk about how it's important that we not think of God as somebody who is worshipped or somebody who is, you know, made, uh, uh, who is represented by an image, whether it be a wooden carved image or a golden carved image, you know, that's not really who God is. God is the God who is not represented 
Uh, but he has, uh, you know, this is Paul arguing in the first century. Um, he has um, put forth a person uh, who represents him, and that's Jesus Christ. And towards the end of that passage, he says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him, for he has set a day of judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who that is by raising him from the dead. And so Christ is that person who God appointed uh, to be the judge of the universe, uh, the judge of all mankind. And so that is, you know, that, that is what uh, the reality is. And we need to look to him to repent of our sins and follow his will. That leads me to a question. I know that you're a Baptist, so you can speak to this more than I can. Although I do agree on the principle, and I definitely agree with the concept. I went to a Sunday night service in Arkansas for a while when I lived there. For I, I went to the Sunday night services for a while just because I liked the pastor. And he gave some great sermons. Now, I didn't always agree with them, but I would say 85% of the time, I probably agreed with him, if not more. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that he said, speaking of repentance and all, is now that you are saved, more is required of you. And I, so many people, and I've heard it say, well, I've gotten saved. Really? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can uh, gripe at my wife. I can do this, that, and we're not all perfect. But the guy just made it sound like he got saved, and it didn't matter what he did. Now, maybe he did not have that. Maybe he didn't want to speak that way. But that—that's what he came across as. So expand. I, I assume that you would agree with this pastor in Arkansas. That now that you've been saved, more is expected of you, correct? And that includes repentance. You know, I, I wouldn't, I, know, I don't know that I would ever describe it that way, but, you know, there is scripture that does say that, you know, to whom more is given, more is required. Yes. Um, and I was actually in my men's Bible study last week talking about leadership and about how you know the reality is leadership is not an easy thing whether you're leading a family a church uh, the government or a business um you know it, it's it's a difficult process at times and so uh there's a verse that says that not many of you should be leaders because for those who are leaders there's going to be higher scrutiny um so you know, a lot of times people think of salvation, and we're going to get into this here in a, in a minute, but uh, we think of salvation as a, as um, kind of like buying an insurance policy, right? Yeah. And, you know, at some point, you know, we might need to redeem this and uh, pull it out and use it. And that's really not how Scripture um, envisions salvation. Uh, salvation is really uh, more like... A relationship that you start and that you build over time and if you remember back to what we were talking about uh, last time which is that god created us for a purpose he's got a purpose for our life he has things that he wants us to accomplish he put us here on this earth to accomplish those things and instead of following god's plan we have chosen 
to go away from God's plan and to serve sin's plan, which brings all kinds of despair, frustration, anxiety into our life. And so God's desire is to go back to serving his plan. And so, you know, in some ways is more required of us. Well, if, if it's, if, if we're comparing it to how much was it required of us when we were living in sin, right? The answer yeah. was nothing because we were sold under sin. But now that God has freed us, uh, does he want us to go back and accomplish his will now? Uh, yeah. But Jesus also said, you know, come to me who are weary and I will give you rest for, you know, take my yoke upon me for my burden is light. So um, I think a lot of it depends on your perspective. So God does want us to live a life of service to him. Uh, but I don't think that we should think of that as um, something that is going to be um, very uh, onerous or oppressive or, you know, I mean, at times it does require us to sacrifice, but it's for the greater good, so... I don't know if that's helpful. Well, or not, I think but... I think what you're talking about too is the process of repentance because we're not perfect. I mean, obviously, okay. If I convert to if I'm a convert to my church, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints, one of the things that we are required to do is to stop drinking and smoking and stop fornicating and. Now, if I go back to that, they're not going to excommunicate me necessarily, but I don't think that I would be worthy to hold certain callings. Now, if I repented, though, in fact, uh, we're going to lead right into this, into what you wrote here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleaning us and to cleaning us from all unrighteousness. Is that kind of what you're maybe alluding to? We've got to repent and move on and try to do better? Um, yes, we do need to repent. Um, but I think it's important to... Um, In, 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 repentance is important, um, uh -huh. but I, I think we got to understand the concept here, right? It's it's we're moving from one kingdom to another kingdom, one way of life to another way of life. Yes. So repentance is only part of it. You know, it's it's turning away from that evil act. Uh, but then there also needs to be a turning towards. Jesus talked about this one time in a parable that's somewhat difficult to understand, but he talked about somebody who was um, who had uh, who was basically tied up, right? And he was not free. And then he got loose and he kicked this oppressor, <clears throat> which was an evil spirit, out of his home. And then that evil spirit went out and got a bunch more evil spirits and then came back and oppressed the man again. And he was worse off than when he started. 
And the point of that is, is that if we don't actually turn our life over to the service of something good, we are going to struggle. Yeah. Because we're often just replacing one bad habit with another. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's true. So we have to constantly work to be better uh, and uh, those type of things. And this actually goes right into something that you wrote here about sinning. It says subjects of God's plan and now are uh, and no longer subject to sin. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 15 through 19 do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Because it sounds like if you've uh, repented and all those things, which is definitely a part of it, and there's more of that, I get that, then you are no longer subject to sin. It sounds like you're subject to freedom. Obviously, we're going to have to repent a lot on this earth because we are not perfect. But uh, yeah, yeah. Go, you can go ahead and expand on that if you want to. Yeah, so when we think about God's plan for our life, God's plan is a good plan. And so then the question becomes, how do we walk down that path? How do we obtain that plan for our own personal life? And so the path to freedom is through taking responsibility, confessing our sin, uh, forgiveness, and then submitting to God's plan. Um, but before before we kind of walk down that, it's important to understand that God, in his uh, justice, he can't just wipe away sin. You know, if I went before a judge and, and, I, and I was uh, accused of committing a crime, and if the judge, if I went up to him and said, well, judge, I'm a pastor, you know, you just got to go light on me because, you know, if you convicted me of a crime, it would look bad for the church, it would look bad for the community. And if a judge was to say, well, yeah, that sounds good. I'm just going to let you go free because you're a pastor. We would recognize that that's not a good judge. You know, that would be an yes. unjust judge. And so God is just. And so he has to punish sin. But at the same time, he has this love for us, right? Because we're made in his image that he wants to set us free. And so he's kind of in this situation where what does he do? And so that's where he sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sin. And Christ is the one who took our sin uh, upon his shoulders. Uh, and that's what, you know, uh, the passage in um, Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so while we do need to turn to God, it's important to understand that, that we are not able to pay that penalty. We are not able to get out from under sin's control because somebody had to pay that penalty for us, and that's what Christ, that's what the Bible says that Christ has done. So then how do we actually obtain uh, that freedom that Christ offers to us um, the first step is actually just taking responsibility for our actions. 
And that's something that can be very difficult in today's society. A lot of people want to blame other people for their problems. Uh, but the, the Bible says that we actually need to say, God, I was the one who went against your plan. I was the one who committed sin. I was the one who yielded to its desires, and uh, I need to confess that to you. So that's the first step. And then the second step is to confess our trust in God and ask Jesus to be our Savior and Lord. And Savior, because he's the one that saves us from our sin, but Lord, in that we are agreeing to go back under his authority and go back to serving his plan for our life. You know, over in Britain, they have the House of Commons and the House of Lords. The Lord just means somebody who is in authority. And so we confess and ask Jesus to be our Savior and our Lord. And we do that in two different ways. First one is just privately, we ask um, God to forgive us of our sins. We confess our sins and we say, God, you know, would you please forgive me, save me from my sin? And I want to follow your plan. And uh, Romans 10, 9 to 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that the uh, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So we that's just a personal thing between us and God. And then we publicly confess our, salva- our, our uh, testimony or our belief in Christ uh, through baptism. <clears throat> and so, you know, I, I liken it to marriage. You know, nobody goes up to the church and says, hey, does anybody want to get married today? Right. You know, we no. first <laughs> privately, you know, find somebody that we have a, a serious relationship with and we privately confess our um, commitment to them. And then we go and make it public and we say, hey, this is who we are. We're we're hus- we know we're going to be uh, committed to each other for the rest of our life, and and so then we're joined in a ceremony of holy matrimony. And our faith is is somewhat similar. It's we first privately confess our faith to God, and then we go before the public or the church. Uh, uh, you know, back in the day in the New Testament era, you know, you would go down to the river. And it would be a very public place. You know, that's where, you know, everybody would gather, you know, at different times throughout the day. People are always coming and going. And um, and so you would be making a public profession of your faith. <laughs> so, you know, those are the first two steps. And then the third one is accepting that gift of forgiveness. When Once we receive uh, forgiveness from God, we actually have to accept it. And that might seem a little bit trivial, but I think it's one thing that a lot of times people really struggle with. We know that God is a merciful God. We know that God loves people, but sometimes we have a hard time believing that God would be willing to forgive my sin. And so we need to accept that God, you have paid that debt. I owed that debt. You paid it for me. And the devil is very good at trying to make us feel guilty for things that God's already settled on our account. Um, and so that's the the step C. And then you are getting to step D, which is now that our sin debt has been settled, why would we want to go back and, and, and serve that evil master again? Yes. We want to get out away from serving sin and start serving good, start serving God. And so, you know, Paul in Romans is making this argument that, you know, sometimes we in our 
own flesh say, well, you know, if God's going to forgive me anyway, why not just continue on doing the wrong thing? And basically he says, hey, you can take a look at your actions. You know, you can look at what you're doing. Uh, Proverbs says, even a child is known by what he does, whether his actions are good or, or pure. He says, just look at what you're doing and whatever you're serving that's who you're a slave to, right? If you're if you yes. are a slave to sin, then that will bring death into your life. If you are serving God, that will bring goodness into your life. And so he says, "Do you not know that to whomever you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness?" But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which you were delivered from. And so God wants us to deliver us from the serving sin, which is going to bring death and destruction into our life. He wants to give new life, a new purpose, so that we can experience that good plan that God has for us. Yeah, in fact, I believe sin can put you into serious bondage. I I know people that have drinking problems or problems with drugs and you name it, fornication, and it's true. They are slaves to this. And I've always wondered, I wasn't a completely rebellious teenager, but, you know, I did things. I, I think most teenagers are rebellious to one degree. Or You've got to have a little rebelliousness in you in order to figure yourself out, I believe. Uh, that's just part of life, some more than others. But I used to wonder as a kid, I think I know why, I used to uh, participate, especially with coworkers, in some questionable behavior like i said i never drank or any of that but with the co-workers that i had i definitely would swear a lot i would tell jokes that we're not supposed to tell with the boss around you can use your imagination there uh we would uh, say things that we wouldn't dare say in front of our parents and yet i still felt god's presence from time to time even to the extent of warning me in a dream do not hang out with these people because X, Y, Z, in spite of me doing all this, in spite of me being a slave to some sins or another, what would you say to that? Because I I always felt God's presence, uh, maybe not so much in the moment, but afterwards. Does that surprise you or not? Oh, no, absolutely. That's I, I believe that is... Uh, the testimony of many, many people that, you know, <clears throat> there's that phrase, that still quiet voice, you know, uh, or, you know, maybe in a dream, but but many people have said that, you know, they, even when they were in their rebellious time, they knew that God was um, there and they knew that God was not necessarily pleased with what they were doing and that God had a desire for them to get back on the right track. And and for many, that that was, you know, kind of when they got to the end of their rope, you know, that's that's what they pulled on and that's what helped them to to overcome. And and that's, you know, really um part of that walking the path to freedom is recognizing 
uh, God's presence in our life. The Bible says that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not only does he forgive us of our sins, but he also gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, who walks with us and who helps us along uh, the way. Uh, that's in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said, Repent, and every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, God is never far from any of us, but this uh, the Holy Spirit is somebody that comes and dwells with us and empowers us to overcome uh, sin in our life. And so I, I think a lot of people have had that experience of, you know, whether it be a prayer that they prayed and God took a desire away from them or... You know, sometimes it's getting down into a situation, whether the police get involved or, or something changes their life. And they all of a sudden they realize, you know, I have got to change the direction of things. And, and God gives them the strength to do that. Yeah. Well, I know people who are constantly uh, in bondage with sin. And I'm not talking little things. I'm talking drugs or whatever. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll talk about God even though they got involved in this years ago, at what point do you think God will say, okay, Kevin doesn't want to listen anymore. I'm not talking to him or whatever, because I would imagine, and you've kind of pointed on this, some of the most hardened criminals out there, maybe they keep coming to prison over and over and over. Maybe God's still trying to talk to them, but at what point does God say, okay, this person's not interested anymore. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know that that's really um that's a difficult thing to realize, but second Peter chapter um three verse nine says that God is long suffering. He's very patient. He wants everyone to have a chance, another chance, another chance. Matter of fact, the disciples came up to Jesus and they said how many chances do I got to give somebody before I just say, man, this guy is a loser? And he said, how many times do you know, does somebody have to sin against me before I can just tell him to go, you know, take a hike? And he said, seven times? And, and Jesus is like, no, 70 times seven. And so if a person in one day sins more than 70 times seven, then you can tell them to go take a hike <laughs> and they come back at each time ask, ask you for forgiveness. So, you know, the Bible says that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Uh, the problem is not God's willingness to forgive. The problem is really our unwillingness uh, to stand up against sin and to realize just how much of a stranglehold it has on our life. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's so very good at blinding us. Uh, but even, at, you know, many people who are just in bondage to sin, they they know it. Uh, they just don't have the willpower uh, to stop it. And, and, and many of them don't really want to, even if they could. So, Well, that leads to a, a thing that we say in our church, and maybe we don't say it long enough, uh, enough wickedness never was happiness. But here's the problem, depending on the sin and what we don't talk about, and maybe we should just to show people that uh, sin can really put you in bondage and Satan is real. 
wickedness sometimes is a lot of fun. That's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I I I say that just a little bit differently. Yeah, you know, go ahead. The old saying that uh, money doesn't buy happiness, but everybody wants to try it out for themselves. You know. Yeah. <laughs> But well, let me ask you this before we move on to uh, we're going to talk about forgiveness. Let me ask you this, and I know you probably will say you don't know, but do you think, in spite of all the devious behavior that Ted Bundy, the serial killer, did, and when he was in jail on death row, do you think, and I know that he did an interview with Dr. James Dobson, you know, accepting him as this, you know, accepting Christ as Savior. We can get into that if you want. But do you think, even in the midst of all this, let's say towards the end of his uh, life, or even let's say back in 86, 84, whatever, uh, even back in 1979, 75, when he was causing a ruckus in the courtroom for attention being the attention hound probably to get off and to distract the judge and all that from the courtroom do you think that god was trying to tell him to shape up even after all those dark evil killings that he did so god has put four institutions in our lives to keep sin from controlling us one is our own conscience right our own uh, ability to govern ourselves yeah the next one is our family um god has given authority to parents uh to train their children up in, in the admonition of the lord then there's the church which is given authority by god uh, as god's minister of grace and so we are there to uh, help people get their life back on track when they when they make mistakes uh and then there's government uh, which is God's minister of justice, and it's there to punish those who do evil. And so all four of those institutions are institutions of God's authority. They represent God's authority in different ways. Um, and so the answer to that question is absolutely yes. I remember visiting with uh, somebody one time uh, who was questioning whether God liked them or not because they were going through a series of really difficult situations and they had prayed about there, and, and God had not answered their prayer. One of them was uh, they were going through a time where God, where they were continually in an abusive relationship, and they had prayed and asked God to get them out of this abusive relationship. And <clears throat> so they asked me, you know, why doesn't God like me? Because he didn't get me out of this abusive relationship when I prayed. And I said, you know, God does not take pleasure in anyone's suffering. Uh, matter of fact, Scripture says that God is angry with the wicked every single day, uh, just like a parent gets angry with their children when they're misbehaving. Um, but God put the institution of government there to take care of those things. And so part of our responsibility is to notify the government when somebody is you know, acting in an abusive way. And so... You know, it, it. Yes, the answer is yes. God is through the government, absolutely telling Ten, Ten Bundy in that moment that hey, you know, th you've made some really bad choices, and you know, Doctor James Dobson is coming in there as representing the church as the minister of God's grace. You know, ultimately saying, hey, you might you might not get out of the consequences of this action in the physical 
body, but you can receive forgiveness uh, in your your spirit uh, and reconcile to God. And we see that even in the last moments of Jesus' life, where the, you know, the two thieves on the cross, you know. Yeah, uh, that's right. One thief was saying, you know, hey, why don't you save yourself, you know, and, and kind of ridiculing him as the crowd was. And the other thief was saying, hey, you know, leave him alone. We both deserve to be here. He doesn't deserve to be here. And so then asked Jesus, you know, remember me, you know, when you when you enter into into your kingdom. And and Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. So here was a convicted criminal uh that was, you know, rightly being, you know. Well, assuming that he, you know, he he was rightly uh, accused and rightly found to be uh, guilty, uh, he was, you know, being executed for his crimes. And God is a just God. He's, you know, God is not one that says, "Hey, let's just let everybody away." You know, we we've seen that with the summer of love, where everybody just got away with all the crimes. That's not God's view of justice or grace. God's view of grace is that somebody does have to pay the penalty, but that was Christ. And so we can receive uh, the blessing of Christ's righteousness. And so the penalty's been paid. Uh, all we have left to do is then put our faith and trust in him. But it's not something where, you know, like Paul says, you got to look at what you're doing. And, and God's not confused about what we're saying. He knows no, the people not. who are just saying words to try to because they're scared about dying and going to hell. And those who are having a genuine moment of repentance and saying, you know what, God, I agree with you. That was a horrible thing to do. I no longer want to live that way. I no longer want to be that person. And I, and I want, I want forgiveness. I want reconciliation with you. Now, some would say the thieves on the cross did not create as big of a crime as murder. Uh, So therefore God would have an easier time forgiving them. What would you say to that? Because we've been told time and time again, I don't want to dispute it, but you know, murder is the one sin that you cannot repent for unless it's self-defense. So what would you say to those people? Well, you know, uh, David himself was guilty of murder. Yes, he was. And yet God said that he was a man after his own heart. So I don't think there's any sin that God can't forgive. Um. And I don't think there's any sin that God doesn't say that we shouldn't forgive. Uh, the reality is, if, if David was was forgiven of murder, of of adultery, of you know some of the most heinous things uh, that we could think of, um, and yet God restored him and forgave him, uh, then you know we have that great hope. You know, it's kind of interesting. In the Old Testament, you see all these different people and. You know, they, they, they weren't um, the most holy people, but yet God used them for, for great holy things. Uh, and, and David, you know, is kind of the pinnacle of, of, you know, the king, the good kings of Israel. And yet he himself, you know, had some very serious personal uh, mistakes. <clears throat> and that really kind of brings me to the last point in the, in the, um, the, path to freedom you know we talked about taking responsibility we talked about uh, confessing our trust in god and asking jesus to be our lord and savior we talked about accepting god's forgiveness and submitting to god's plan and no longer serving sin 
um, and then also how the Holy Spirit comes and live with us. And so we need to to make sure that we're living a life, you know, that's that's uh, understanding that. You know, I'd ask people, you know, if as a pastor, are there places that you wouldn't take me, you know, or is there things that you wouldn't do if I came over to your house, you know, maybe websites you wouldn't go to or whatever. And if the answer to that is yes, then we shouldn't be doing that when the pastor's no longer around because even still, the Holy Spirit is always with us. And so we need to live our life to that. Uh, but the last uh, step on the path to freedom there is to extend the gift of forgiveness to others because of what Christ has done for us. Yes, that's exactly where I want to go. And you know um, that really is a difficult thing for people. Go ahead. Well, I, I'll let you go ahead and talk, and then I'll ask some questions, because I think you might answer my question. You know, a lot of times we kind of just feel like, oh, yes, we want forgiveness for ourselves, but God, why are you asking me to forgive somebody else? They hurt me. You know, and I think uh, maybe at a subconscious level, we kind of have this idea of, um, well, now today it's called intersectionality, but it's kind of like the persecution Olympics. And if I'm more persecuted than the next guy, somehow that makes me better than the next guy. Or at least, you know, we have this idea of when we get up to heaven, God's going to look at us and say, you know, yeah, you you made some mistakes, but look at all these, you know, things that happened to you. Uh, but that's not really God's purpose or plan. He wants us to forgive others. You know, Ephesians 4.32 is a verse that we've all heard, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And so we're taught, hey, forgive. But it's even more than just a teaching. It's really a command and even a condition. If we look at Matthew chapter 6, you know, this is where the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so then we have the famous, the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven. And when he gets done praying that prayer, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you of your trespasses. And I always ask people, why would God, who loves Jesus, you know, the Father and the Son, they're one, and they have this perfect love towards each other, and yet the Father, you know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he, you know, he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. He has this great love for Jesus. Why would he send Jesus down to earth to say, hey, I want you to die for the sins of mankind so that we can reconcile all people to ourselves and that we can invite them into heaven? Why would he do that and then put this condition on here saying, hey, if you don't forgive other people of yours their sins, I'm not going to forgive you? Why do you think he would do that? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't make much sense, does it? It doesn't make much sense, except for if we go back to number two uh, in the gospel of freedom, which is that God loves you and created you to experience love, joy, and freedom. And if God created us to experience love, joy, and freedom, how much love, joy, and freedom can we experience if we're full of bitterness, anger, and hatred? Well, you have a point. Uh, you know, I, I've heard of, I know people that say, oh, I don't like this person. I say, why? 
well, so-and-so did this to me 30 years ago. Well, okay, I can understand that depending on what it was that they did to you 30 years ago, but more often than not, it's something that's so petty. You know, so-and-so stole candy from me 30 years ago. So-and-so did this uh, five years ago, and I just ask the person, can't you talk this over and maybe work something out or maybe come to a reconciliation? Oh, no, I'm so mad I can't do it. And yet yeah, those and people are what? I was just to say, yeah, that is where a lot of people are. Yeah, and yet those people are the same folks who are lecturing us about forgiving others and moving on. But here is a question, though. How do you forgive somebody that did something very wrong? And I'm not talking about stealing candy. I'm not talking about, oh, so-and-so said something that really offended me. I'm talking about really, you know, maybe injured you or purposely, you know, uh, let's say somebody, oh, I don't know. Let's just say somebody, you were working at a factory and somebody intentionally did not turn off the machine when it was twisting your arm because mm. that person didn't like you and wanted the worst things. How do you forgive that person and yet still not be their friends? Because just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean you trust them. I think we got to make a, distinguish a distinguishing point here. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. We need to understand exactly what it is that God is calling us to do and and when he says to forgive others, you know, what what does that actually mean and, and then how how do you do it? And so <clears throat> you know, first of all, we got to understand that God's purpose for us is to experience love and joy and peace, right? And we cannot yes. do that by holding on to the past and holding on to all this sin to where it causes us to be angry and bitter. Now, we in inside of our each one of us, because we're made in God's image and we bear his image, you know, each one of us has this desire for justice, right? And so when we see somebody that we know has done something evil, we want them to pay, right? When we go yes. to a movie and we see that bad guy, you know, doing all these evil things, and then the good guy comes in and destroys him. We feel great about that because that's exactly Absolutely. what he deserves, right? Yep. And so each one of us have that within ourselves, this idea of justice and a desire for justice. And that comes from God. That's not, you know, that's not something worldly. That That's coming from God. And so God is a just God. He wants justice. He wants to see the wicked destroyed. And <clears throat> so then, you know, why is he telling us to forgive others? Well, in Romans chapter 12, no, I should say in the Old Testament, in, in Genesis chapter 9, Noah gets off the ark, right? Yep. And we remember the rainbow that God said, you know, no longer am I going to um, destroy the earth by a flood. But what he did was at that time, he told, um, he told Noah, you know, not only am I not going to destroy the earth by a flood, but from now on, it is going to be up to mankind to establish justice if somebody sheds man's blood by man will his blood be shed and so god delegated that responsibility to man and in the old testament you have this concept of the avenger of blood 
which means if my brother was killed, it was my responsibility to go hunt down his killer and to kill him. Uh, because that's justice by, you know, if, if man sheds man's blood, then by man will his blood be shed. But as society has developed, uh, now we have the institution of government that's been developed and instituted for that purpose, to punish those who do evil. And so now in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, no longer do we need to repay evil for evil or seek vengeance when somebody does us wrong. He says, do not repay evil for evil, and uh, but instead repay good, repay evil with good. And then he says that it's up to God's responsibility. The Lord, uh, God says, uh, "Vengeance is mine," says the Lord. I will repay. And so, part of the understanding of this idea of forgiveness is when we sin because God is our Creator and God is our judge, it's God who's going to give us the punishment for our sin. And so when somebody sins against me, yes, they might have harmed me, but I, I don't, I'm not anything to them, right? But they're going to stand before God one day and give an account of their life. And so I don't need to hold on to this sin anymore. I can just give it to God and say, hey, you know, put that on his account. Um. And so when we think about what is forgiveness, forgiveness is uh, transferring the responsibility to seek vengeance to a higher authority. So, you know, if somebody backs into my car, and let's say I know who it is, right? Let's say it was you, Kevin. Yep. Uh, you backed into my car, and, and now you come to me and say, you know, Sorry, Mike, you know, and then you drive off. It's like, well, I appreciate the apology, but I still I still need somebody to get justice for me. I still need to be made whole. My car still has this big dent in it, right? And so then I can call the police and the police will, you know, come and, you know, find you and take your insurance and, and then, you know, we'll work out the deal there. But that's their responsibility. They're they're there to seek justice. So right after Paul gets done in Romans 12 saying justice is, you know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. He institutes government in Romans chapter 13, that all authority is from God and that government has been given authority to punish those who do evil. And so our job as Christians is no longer to go out and be concerned about getting back at people uh, in order to get the, you know, to get at them at what they've done. That's the job of government. The job of government is to um, punish people. Now we see in Roman or Matthew eighteen, right? There's this uh, kind of uh, hierarchy process or appeals process uh, of which we're supposed to go through when people sin against us, right? We first go to them individually and say, "Hey, you know, you you upset me or you offended me," and then we, you know, appeal to their conscience. Then we bring in two or three people, appeal to their conscience, and, and maybe you know try to do some peer pressure. And if they still won't listen, then we take them to the church if they're a believer, and we work through the church to try to you know solve our differences. And if the church says you know hey this you are in the wrong, and that person won't fall under the church's leadership, then Jesus says that we are to treat them like an unbeliever, 
which means then we can take it to the authorities and, you know, get uh, justice that way. And so that's kind of how we can appeal through those different levels of authority. But what is it that God is calling to us to when he says to forgive men their trespasses? It means that we no longer need to be the ones making sure that people suffer for their uh, for their wrongs, that we can either turn that over to a human authority, that can be the government, it can be the church, it can be you know, somebody's parents if they're a child or something like that, um, or if a human authority won't take on the responsibility of justice, then we just give it directly to God and say, God, you created this person, they're going to stand before you one day, you have not given me the responsibility to to get even with them or to make them suffer for their uh, for what they did. That's something that you're going to do. They're going to stand before you one day, and my job is just to hope and pray uh, that they g- get right with you before before they meet that day. And so that's how you can have somebody who's harmed you, you know, and done serious wrong, and you can say, you know what, I forgive you. Meaning, it does not mean that it didn't hurt. It doesn't mean that it wasn't wrong. And it doesn't mean that everything's okay now. Because often the times those aren't the case. It, it was always wrong. It probably still hurts. And, and oftentimes, you know, even though we can maybe replace a car, you know, or something like that, we can't undo what's been done. And so what forgiveness is, is just transferring the responsibility to a higher authority uh, to seek vengeance on our behalf. But you can still put boundaries on whoever stole your car or something. You you can still put boundaries on that person saying, we're not going to do business again. You're not coming over to the house again. It, it, it's still, Absolutely. And that's what, yeah. that's what government does oftentimes, right? When, when yep. somebody is, is doing damage or has a, shown a propensity to do that, they will put a restraining order on them. Or, you know, tell them, you know, hey, you you can't go within, you know, 300 feet of this person. Well, certainly that we have the ability to do that in our own lives. You know, we can say, hey, I'm no, it's not my job to get even with you. Uh, but I also recognize that, you know, you're, you're not a person who's really serving God right now. And so I don't really want you to, to be, you know, a... There, there's that uh, verse in Proverbs that bad company corrupts good morals. And so... We don't really want to be surrounding ourselves with people who are serving sin. Yeah. Now let's talk about charity. The world's definition of charity is giving to the poor. But as far as I know, charity is the pure love of Christ. Part of it is giving to the poor, yes. But what in your mind, and according to the scriptures, what is charity, especially if you read First Corinthians chapter fifteen, I believe is what it is. Fifteen or sixteen? I think it's sixteen. Thirteen. Thirteen is 13. the love chapter. Okay. First Corinthians thirteen. Yeah, talks about um, the qualities of love. Love is kind. Love is patient. Um, yeah, and so you know, charity is simply, uh, if you are going to put it into one word, it, it means love. Um, an aspect of charity is helping people when they are in need. Uh, giving to the poor. That certainly is an aspect of charity. Um, But even if we said love, um, you know, that doesn't always really 
help us to understand what it is that God wants us to do. Uh, number 10 in this gospel to freedom is that we must pursue God's plan for our lives by loving God and loving our neighbor. And that's really what charity is, is, is really is having a heart that's committed to living a life of love. You know, asking yourself, you know, what is the greatest possible thing I can be doing each moment? Well, you can answer that by just asking this question, what is the most loving thing that I can be doing in this moment? Um, and somebody once asked Jesus, you know, what is the greatest commandment? You know, if, 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 if I wanted to do something great for God or if I wanted to try to do something uh, that would really honor God, what is the most important commandment that I need to keep? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Now here, Jesus is God, and he's telling us, you know, this is the most important commandment. And so, you know, I always, <laughs> whenever I was a kid and I read that, it's kind of like, my goodness, God, you're a little bit needy, aren't you? If you need me to love you with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, you know, I think of as a, a father of five girls, you know, if, if, if one of my girls came home and, you know, and met a boy and I said, Hey, what's he like? And she said, well, you know, uh, he's, he's a really nice boy. And, you know, I think he would, you know, be very respectful, but he wants me to love him with all of his, my heart, all of my soul, all of my strength, all of my mind. I'm like, um, maybe, maybe we need to find somebody else, you know, uh, that's a little bit too much. And so, you know, I, as a child, I kind of read that and I thought, huh, I wonder why God is, is so needy because we believe that God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. So why is he wanting us to love him just so much? And, you know, as I've grown up, as I've become a pastor and as, as I've gotten even to know myself, what I have realized is that our love, even our love is very selfish very self-centered, you know, I will do great things for you in hopes that you will do nice things for me. And even, you know, when, when we do something nice for somebody, you know, it's often with the idea, okay, okay, now what are you going to do for me? Um, and so we have a very selfish kind of love and, you know, I, I've been married this, uh, we celebrated 20 years of marriage last week well, and sometimes, you know, I'll, Thank you. I'll bring home flowers to my wife, you know, and, and I'll be like, you know, honey, I, I I brought these to you for you to show you how much I love you. And, you know, she'll be like, oh, well, thank you, you know, or maybe she doesn't really appreciate the gift that I brought her home. And and now I'm upset because she didn't show me the amount of appreciation that I wanted or or, you know, if she says, oh, well, thank you. And I say, well, you know, five minutes later, hey, honey, you know, I got these flowers for you uh, because really what I want is I want, you know, affirmation or, you know, something in return where what God is saying is, no, we need to love him first. And if I love God first and I love him with everything that I have, all my soul, mind, body, strength, how much of that? And if God is good, how much of that of my love or my desire or my passion would be left over for my selfish desires. And the reality is none, right? If we love God with everything, there's nothing left over to serve myself. And so when we put God first and we love him first, 
instead of asking my wife, hey, did you see how much I love you? You know, if I say to God, hey, God, how can I show you that I love you? How can I love you? And he says, Michael, I want you to go. I want you to love me by going and showing kindness to your wife. And I say, okay. And so I buy her these flowers to show kindness to her. Well, now I'm not looking for something in return anymore, right? Now yeah. I'm doing this for God. And because, because God has wanted me to, to show kindness to my wife and I show that kindness to her, even if she responds in a negative way, it's like, okay, well, I already got what I wanted. I just wanted to show God how much I loved him, right? Now, yeah. obviously, if it's true love, you're not going to purposely try to upset your spouse, but their reaction to your love is not the uh, indicator of whether you know your love was successful or not, because the purpose of it wasn't to try to get something out of them. It was trying to try to show God uh, how much we care for them. So we first have to put God first because that purifies our love, and then we can love others. And there's this really, really cool uh, verse in 1 John chapter 4. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite passages of the entire Bible. Uh, it says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. Now, think about this for a second. God is love, not, not, not in the totality of it, but a characteristic of God is love. And it's so much a part of his character that people who know God, that people who interact with God, that people who are loved by God uh, are going to experience and then love others in return. Now, we can't see God with our physical eyes, right? He's not a physical being. We can't go up and touch him. Uh, God is spirit. But this promise here in 1 John says that if we love each other, and not the kind of, hey, I'm going to buy these flowers for you so I can get something from you, but the real kind of love, the love that hurts, the love that says, you know what, you have really hurt me but I'm going to let go of it. I'm going to let God be your judge, and I'm going to seek your good even though you have harmed me. When we love with that kind of love, the Bible says that God's love enters into us and we can see God at work in our life as we go out and love other people. And so if you ever want to see God at work in your life, if you ever want to see is God's presence real? Go out and love other people, the hard people to love, and you'll now, see that God is real. I have to ask you this, and then we've got to leave, and we'll obviously do it part three. Um, 
how do you love somebody that you don't agree with their lifestyle? Or how do you love somebody? This kind of goes back to the forgiving thing. But how do you love yeah. someone who did some serious uh, actions towards you that just were detrimental to your health or your well-being? Um, how do you love somebody that you do not approve of their lifestyle? Yeah. Let's say you have a son or daughter that comes home and professes to be gay or lesbian, and they're insistent no matter what you say or do, they're not going to change. Uh, yeah. How do you love those people and still be firm and all those things? Yeah, so I think we got to understand what love is, right? And so Romans or First Corinthians thirteen gives us characteristics of love: is being kind, being gentle, being patient. Um, but but I don't think that really tells us what love is at its heart. What is it the object that we're trying to work towards? And so this is how I define love: I define love as wanting the very best for somebody and being willing to sacrifice to help them accomplish their best. True love is wanting the very best for somebody and being willing to sacrifice to help them accomplish their best. Yeah. Now, what does it mean to help somebody accomplish their best? What is their best? Well, as a Christian, I believe the best for each person is to do God's will. And so if we apply that definition of a person's best is to do God's will, then we can say that a loving a person is being willing, is wanting them to do God's will and being willing to sacrifice to help them accomplish God's will. And so we would not join them in their sin. We would not uh, aid them in their sin or even assist them or... Um, you know, give them money to go out and do sin. That wouldn't be a loving act. No. But when they're ready to turn away from their sin, then we would jump in and help them to the best of our ability. And and so that's that's my definition of love, is love is wanting the very best for somebody no matter what and being willing to sacrifice to help them accomplish. I would imagine, though, uh, with my folks, or with certain members of my family... If I really got into drugs or, you know, denounced Christianity, I'm sure my siblings would still want the best for me. I mean, ultimately, they'd want me to accept Christ. But even if I didn't, I'm sure that they would want me to be gainfully employed or want me to be successful in whatever business I choose or profession and maybe, some, you know, in spite of my choices, because I do work hard, my siblings would help me here and there. They may not go with me to, a, you know, maybe a bar or nightclub where certain people hang out. But I'm sure that they would help me financially sometimes or get a business running off the ground in spite of my lifestyle. They're just not going to go to the places I go in my spare time. Is that a pretty good uh, analysis there of love? You want the best for that person, but you're not going to participate, but you're still going to help them financially or whatever if they need it. 
You know, it's it's uh, each situation is very difficult, and and so I don't necessarily want to say, you know, hey, this is how you ought to act in this situation. I really tell people that that's something you really have to depend upon the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you into each moment of, you know, how best to help that person. You know, for example, here in in um, you know, I'm the president of the ministerial association. And people will come, you know, to the ministerial association, ask for a food voucher or a gas voucher, you know, for help or assistance with different things. And and so I will always give them one right away with really no questions asked uh, other than their name. Uh, and then when they come back for another one, I usually will, you know, kind of inquire a little bit more about what's going on in their life. Uh, but after that one, you know, usually the third or fourth one, I'll tell them that, hey, in order to get this voucher, you need to come to church on Sunday. Yeah, uh, because my experience has been that a lot of times people are in difficult situations in life because they've made bad choices. And those choices, just giving them money, you know, to help uh, um, to help continue on the path that they're going is actually just leading them further down into destruction. And so they need to break that cycle. And, and one of the ways that they can do that is by coming to church and learning that, hey, there's a better way to live your life. And so, you know, encouraging them to do good things is one of the ways that, you know, we can help people. And so while, yes, I do want to continue to assist them where they need assistance, uh, I also want them to really, I want them to to assist them in the in the areas where they need assistance the most, which is their spiritual life. And so, you know, how does that work on an individual sit situation? I think that that's where we have to take that to the Lord and to ask him in prayer, you know, God, how do I best love this person? And I think, I think the answer is different in every situation, just because you know, we're in proximity to different people and understand, you know, each person's uh, situation in a different way. And so ultimately God looks at our heart, not necessarily at the results of what happens, but um, that would be my answer. We really just got to go out and, and ask God, what do you want me to do? And then to the best of our ability, uh, do what he asks. Amen to that. Well, is there anything else you want to cover before we end this particular episode? No, other than if if uh, somebody wants uh, more information uh, for learning more about uh, the gospel of freedom, uh, I'm sure you'll have the, the contact information in, in the uh, podcast, and yeah. uh, I'd be glad to visit more. But uh, uh, yeah, just uh, thank you for the time, and I've really enjoyed uh, walking through this together. Absolutely. And uh, I will see, I will talk to you next time on this podcast, folks. Thank you for listening to the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. If you want to follow us on Facebook, go ahead and do so at Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone. If you want to follow us on Twitter, Gitter, and True Social, you can do so at RKY Freedom. That's RKY, then the word freedom. If you have a suggestion, comment, or you know of a guest that you think I should interview, go ahead and email the podcast. That email is Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. That's Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at 
Proton, P-R-O-T-O-N-M-A-I-L.com. That's Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at ProtonMail.com. Thank you for listening.